Back in the 1960s when I was a child, we were always able to go to California. Dr. George Brooks Jr. remembers his West Coast childhood. We like to go down to San Diego and go to the beach. And I was fascinated by the sea life there and eventually learned how to actually bring some of them home and things like that I found on the beach, hermit crabs, whatever else, on the beach home and put them in a fish tank and keep them alive for months. But home for him was, and is, Arizona. You might assume that it's only natural for somebody with an interest in all things aquatic to live in a state like California. But Brooks was able to keep his interest right here. He still has a passion for fish, but now he's turned it into a community, a career, and his life's work. Today's episode is going to be about Brooks, but it's also going to be about genetics. The unique properties of the zebrafish is that it's a genetic similarity with the human genes. And even gardening. But remember what Grandpa says. No work, no garden. Today's episode also focuses on ideas like how the food we eat and the way we make that food have an effect on the world around us. And all of these topics will relate back to fish. But how does a landlocked state like Arizona have fish in the desert? Well, come on, or swim on, into the lab, and let's find out. Welcome back to the lab at AZ Central. I'm your host, Alexandra Watts. This episode, we'll be looking at fish in the desert. You'll be hearing a lot of aqua-related terms in this episode, especially aquaculture. So before we start, what is aquaculture? Aquaculture is basically agriculture in the water. So that means the farming of fish and other aquatic organisms. On this episode, we're talking to people who deal with aquaculture on different scales, from home gardens and the more local level to actual fish farms. But first, let's go back to George Brooks. Brooks is the founder, CEO, and president of NXT Horizon, an urban planning and agricultural company that works with agricultural groups, farmers, and local governments. He's also a community organizer, leader, and educator. Now, when we spoke with Brooks for this episode, it was during the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 pandemic. For safety, this and all of the interviews done for this episode are virtual. But lucky for us and for all of you, he actually has a YouTube channel where he chronicles some of the work he does. But it just looks so pretty sometimes. But right now you're looking at uh, tomatoes and trying to get them to... Uh get more blooms, I think I need more phosphorus, but they're doing really well, and we have broccoli coming up here. In this video, he's showing us his garden, but this garden is still a form of aquaculture. It's called aquaponics, and it's a food system that has both aquatic animals and traditional crops. We weren't able to see this garden in person, 
But on his YouTube channel, Brooks shows off some of the other things he grows and gives us updates. Excuse me, like carrots and onions and uh, various types of lettuce coming out here. You can see more of the broccoli and the Aquaponics is a mix of aquaculture and hydroponics, an agricultural method where plants are grown in water, no soil required. And combining the growing methods helps the organisms involved. Fished waste can be used as fertilizer because it has nitrogen that plants need to grow, and water for the plants can be recycled for the fish. Turnips coming up over here. and. But all of the work he does now, it all started right here. His father, Reverend Dr. George Brooks Sr., was a Presbyterian pastor who was active in the civil rights movement in the Valley, and his line of work was the reason his family traveled to California. Travel was limited <laughs> in the 60s, uh, before 1964, uh, and even after, afterwards, for some very unkind reasons. But we were always able to go to California, where there was no uh, germination restrictions from the uh, hotel that was owned by the church. His mother, Lula, a scientist herself, encouraged his interest in water and biology. He describes her as somebody who worked more behind the scenes. Hidden figures were not only in aerospace, they were in all areas of science. So she was a medicine. And uh, she, she was the first to discover um, a, a way to uh, grow this the disease they still haven't cured called valley fever in a laboratory. But uh, she transitioned out of that because she didn't, didn't want to bring that disease home to her children. So she became a science teacher and she saw my interest and suggested to me, well, how about fish farming? She showed me an article about it and I was hooked, if you excuse the pun. It took me a moment to get the pun. I asked him if being in a landlocked state with a passion for all things aquatic was difficult. Yes, it would have been much easier if we were in uh, some of the larger fish farming areas of the United States, but you know, such as you know, the southern states, of course, but where there is a will, there is a way. I was here, so I never considered it would it be easier for me if I was somewhere else. Brooks attended Arizona State University in the 1970s and later graduated with a degree in zoology. And during this time, he also started turning his passion into a career. He talks about a series of events that really changed his life during this time. Let's start with event number one, an internship. And I was, by pure serendipity, was hired as a student intern by the USDA Water Conservation Laboratory. I was hired there as a student intern to work with the research scientists um, you know, um, to help facilitate them doing their research on agriculture crops. He worked under Dr. Bruce Campbell, whom he has fond memories of, and was able to publish his first paper. He was working on um, what turns out to be some of the early global warming research. Uh, he was researching directly what will happen to plants, and particularly food plants, when carbon dioxide levels rise. He learned my interest in aquaculture, and he helped me to uh, write my first paper on the subject uh, for publication. His paper focused on what would happen to fish if they covered them to keep them warm using a greenhouse. Then there's event number two, a chance encounter at the drive-thru. I was uh, working at a 
uh, fast food restaurants, as, and I had, had had some kind of, of, of additional income. And but pure serendipity, the owner, and this was in Tempe, the owner of the only fish farm in the city of Phoenix, drove through the drive-through. Soon, Brooks was actually working at the fish farm, and he was introduced to fish that looked different from the ones in his childhood. So this fish farm was uh, raising tilapia. And it was my first time working with these fish. I had never seen them before. When I looked, looked at them, I thought they were goldfish. Uh, but they're nowhere near, near related and look very different when you actually understand what you're looking at. But uh, I was able to work with his farm. I worked with his farm as a biologist and learned an incredible amount and realized that I needed to go to grad school in order to further my education. Brooks got his master's degree in biology at San Diego State University, where he focused on aquaculture. And just again, by pure serendipity, at the right moment. And again, everything came together for Brooks. For event number three, it was a job back here in Arizona. I, I saw a job announcement, and I think it was the Arizona Republic, for a job with the University of Arizona. I won the job, and I became what was essentially called the aquaculture extension specialist for the University of Arizona. Brooks was actually the first ever aquaculture extension specialist for U of A. He also got a PhD in wildlife and fisheries resources from the university. He went across the state promoting the benefits of aquaculture. A major part of what he did and what he continues to do today is to teach people about the benefits of aquaculture and encourage them, no matter what age or educational background, to get involved themselves. One of the things that I always wanted to do was to bring the benefits of an aquaculture-based economy into the city, the inner city, where I was from. You know, I, um, was, I'm born, raised, and still live. Brooks is from South Phoenix. My grandmother had a farm, now, not too far from where I live now. She was at maybe, what was it, uh, 30th Street and Broadway, my grandfather, and she had a farm there. And I always wanted to bring this into the city. He wants to bring sustainable and accessible food systems to South Phoenix and the Valley at large. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, one in three households surveyed in Arizona has experienced food insecurity, according to a joint study from ASU and the National Food Access and COVID Research Team. Brooks advocated for policies and initiatives like urban aquaculture that allow people to have access to food they grow themselves. Now, you might be wondering how you incorporate aquaculture in everyday life. We obviously don't have an ocean here, and agriculture even on a smaller scale at home, can be seen as a daunting task. You don't need acres and acres and acres uh, as you do uh, with more traditional techniques. And that means that you can use this in more confined locations, like perhaps a city. And that is where my focus has been lately, refining the technology so, and so that it reduces the cost of, of access, because that's another issue. Fish farms cost a lot of money. 
So what if we could bring the cost of access down so that more people inside the city could access the opportunity to create a farm on a small amount of land and the jobs and the food to benefit underserved neighborhoods? In a college course that Brooks teaches, he uses a method that uses a kiddie pool to grow prawns. In an aquaponic garden, fish grow alongside fruits and vegetables, and they help each other. He also has his own garden with his wife, Angela, who's also in some of his YouTube videos like this one. We're getting aquaponic broccoli today. There's one head. Look how large. Uh, there's one it was just up. two? Yeah. Okay. Oh, there, there's a third one that might be ready right there. And there's also an Arizona Republic article from 2020 about him. The article was written by Aaron Stone, and you can read it online. Here's a written description of his farm from the story, read by bioscience reporter Melina Walling. Basil, thyme, rosemary, sage, and other herbs line the walkway to the front door. The backyard has a variety of fruit trees, from pomegranate to plum to apple. There's too much produce growing to name. Tomatoes, squash, melons, cucumbers, blackberries, and Swiss chard are just a few. One day, the couple hopes to grow catfish, clams, and eventually giant freshwater prawns in Brooks Aquaponics Victory Garden. I'll mix this with the soil broccoli. We'll have a nice steak, broccoli, and potato, and carrots right. today. Now, you might be wondering what a victory garden is. It's basically a food system that's especially encouraged during times of war. On this farm in the rolling hill country of northern Maryland, the holders, rallying to the call for more food, join the growing army of victory gardeners. That's a clip from the 1940s. It focuses on the efforts of one family on their victory garden. Victory gardens in the United States are usually associated with World War I or World War II. But remember what Grandpa says, no work, no garden. Get what that means. No work, no spuds. No work, no turnip, no tank, no flying fortress, no victory. Bear that in mind, all you victory gardeners, and work for victory. You can do it. <laughs> you can actually do this. And would that allow us to reinvigorate the old Victory Garden business model that was used to, with such great success during World War II today and have it be successful again? Today, Brooks is still active in the community. He sees gardening as an empowering tool, especially for communities of color. He really wants gardening to be accessible for the community as a whole. It's not just a personal passion for fish or sea creatures or aquaponics. And he's part of a new initiative that's encouraging of at-home agriculture and aquaculture, the Phoenix Backyard Garden Project. And this great program was kicked off on October 1st. And 30% of it is using the concepts that I threw out as far as aquaponics and we're going to have 30 aquaponic systems put into various backyards here in um, Maryville, Australia, um, South Mountain, and Levine. They, uh, they invited me to come in 
and do the work as far as the aquaponics. So basically, we've taken the stuff I was talking about and we're now going to apply it across parts of the city of Phoenix to see how well this really works. Brooks is using fish as one way to tackle food insecurity and sustainability. But other people are looking at fish to help us with human health. And it turns out they're learning something about sustainability too. When we come back, you'll meet two other people working with fish in the desert. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Melina Walling, and I'm a biosciences reporter at the Arizona Republic. You're listening to The Lab at AZ Central, where we'll take you across the state to answer bioscience questions big and small. What exactly is bioscience? Well, this season, it's robots that can talk to plants, solving crimes using pollen, and raising fish in the desert. If that sounds pretty weird, well, it is. But it's also life-changing stuff. And all of it is for people outside the lab. People like you and me. So if you're enjoying this episode so far, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow us and our other Arizona Republic podcasts, Valley 101 and The Gaggle, on Instagram and Twitter. Now, back to the show. You're listening to The Lab at AZ Central. Did you know that one of the animals that shares a lot of similarities with humans is one you might not expect? Do you know what it is? Well, this episode is about fish, so there's a hint right there. If you guessed the zebrafish, you're correct. It's a small freshwater fish that you've probably passed by in the pet store. When you look at the zebrafish, uh, they have um, a lot of similarity in terms of genes. That's Sampath Rangasamy, a research associate professor at TGen. He explains how a small see-through fish has a lot in common with us. So it it might be totally different from the mammalian system, like most of the mammalian animals. But the unique properties of the zebrafish is that it's a genetic similarity with the human genes. So more than 80% of the zebrafish, majority of the genes in the zebrafish have a higher degree of similarity with the human genome. So that's why it is it is very easy to modify those genes in the zebrafish and how it affects the organ development or disease development in the human. His work looks at developing treatment for diseases like pancreatic cancer by looking at this fish's genes. Looking at zebrafish genes is also how Dr. Benjamin Rehnquist, an associate professor at the University of Arizona, got into his work. So my research initially started uh, with zebrafish, and that's a model organism for human diseases people use commonly. If you think about those green and red and yellow neon fish that you can buy at the pet store, those are zebrafish. Those are zebrafish that are specifically expressing fluorescent proteins because they've artificially created these genetically modified organisms. But people use them to study diabetes, hypertension. A lot of people use them to study development. And I was using zebrafish as a model for diabetes. I was trying to understand um, what causes obesity. In his work with zebrafish, Rehnquist took what he learned and applied it elsewhere. While I was doing that, through the development of this novel test, 
we found that if we identified embryonic fish that had a high metabolic rate, meaning they expended a lot of energy, and this is when they're they're very, very young. So think of a, a newborn baby. If, if they expend a lot of energy, that meant that these fish were growing rapidly and they were dividing, their cells were dividing and they were growing quickly. And so we were actually able to identify fish that were inherently faster growing. This led him to develop his own company, Geneta Rate, in 2018. Uh, rating the genetics, that's how we came up with the name. What we focused on was automating the procedure. And so we developed a sorter that automatically sorts the eggs into whether they're going to be high growth or low growth based upon a fluorescent signal that they create if they've got a higher metabolic rate. The company offers technology for aquaculture producers to get the best yield possible. And that's how uh, I went about starting this idea of a company that could identify fish that were better for growth. And that has been converted over to a, a company now that works to specifically right now, they're focused on identifying faster growing salmon and trout. And one of the neat things about this is we're doing this through natural selection. So we aren't modifying the organism at all. We are just identifying the animals that inherently are faster growing. I mean, if you think about a family of people, you have some people that are tall and some people that are short. Well, you don't know that inherently right at the beginning uh, when they're born. But we can identify that using this test in fish. We can identify which fish are going to be the fastest growing. And we can use those fish to provide future genetics um, to improve genetics in aquaculture and improve growth. And the key advantage of that is it will decrease the amount of time it takes for the fish to get to a, a size where, where the farmer can sell it and therefore decrease their carrying costs and improve their profitability. In 2021, an aquaculture biotechnology company, IMV Technologies, acquired Genetarate. Rehnquist work started in Arizona, but he works with producers everywhere as the aquaculture field grows and changes. About half of all seafood in the world comes from aquaculture, so that would mean farmed fish. And as the way we consume and the aquaculture industry changes, the world is changing too. And both of those are due to issues related to sustainability, depleting natural resources, food systems, and climate change. And those issues affect us all. According to the World Wildlife Fund, more than 3 billion people rely on seafood, both wild and farmed, as a primary protein source. But as our global population increases and consumes more sea creatures, the population of aquatic animals is decreasing. One of our crucial food sources is being depleted as more wild fish are being caught and as climate change alters their habitats. Some argue that farm fish can still escape and threaten local populations, especially if the fish being farmed are not native to an area and become an invasive species. And the potential waste from aquaculture operations worries others too. Aquaculture, like any solution, is not the perfect one. It's not the end-all, be-all to issues like sustainability, depleting natural resources, food systems, and climate change. But all of these issues are real and affecting all of us. And aquaculture is one potential solution in lessening the effects of these things. There are technological advances that make farming fish in the desert possible. 
And Rehnquist explained some of the reasons why it's possible for that to happen right here in Arizona. I think the lack of water obviously makes it hard for aquaculture to, to flourish here, but we've been dealing with a lack of water for a long time. And so we know how to recirculate water. We know how to reuse water. Um, and those are key things now that even these countries with a lot of water are trying to, to learn about. And so we've got an opportunity to, to help them better understand how to use their water and how to conserve water and protect it. He thinks that by farming fish here, we can make a local impact on a global problem. The other thing, you know, we've got a warm climate that's almost year round warm enough for aquaculture. And that's really important. Uh, if we can uh, grow fish year round and, and some of these fish just grow better in warmer temperatures, um, that provides an opportunity. Also, I think, you know, a key thing is we've got a big population. And so a producer that can produce fish here in Arizona and, and get them to Phoenix and Tucson and Flagstaff and Sedona can do that a lot cheaper than having those fish produced, you know, in Texas or Louisiana and then shipped over uh, to Arizona. And so having small farmers or moderately sized farmers produce locally I think we've all seen the local food movement, and, and I think that's a really important part. And so aquaculture can fill that niche. There are ways that people are learning more about fish and the desert and the world at large. Whether it's an aquaponics garden used as a food system, genetic research that can link to sustainability, or just an overall awareness of aquatic creatures. For example, there's a guide called Seafood Watch from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's also an app and it allows people to choose sustainable seafood options, both farmed and caught. So fish in the desert are kind of like a lot of things we talk about here in the lab. They're one small part of a very big picture. Genetics, our food supply, the entire ecosystem, they're all complicated problems. And there's not one solution. But George Brooks says that with aquaculture, there's one solution that has been with us all along. It's where you grow fish with land crops and, and you combine the two. Um, while you're growing the fish, their waste fertilizes the water and, and it allows for plants to grow. It's old, it's 5,000 years old. It just keeps getting reinvented over and over again because it works. They have done this method in one form or another where they grow some kind of aquatic crop using a fish and they put the water onto the fields to grow, grow the crops. Very efficient and again, it, it just works, which is why it keeps getting reinvented. If you have questions about science, you can submit them at the lab at azcentral.com. And if you like what you heard today and want to know more, support us by subscribing at azcentral.com. Thanks for tuning into the Lab at AZ Central, a podcast from the Arizona Republic at azcentral.com. Melina Walling contributed to the reporting in this episode. Josh Susong is our editor. Support for our independent coverage of bioscience at AZ Central comes from a grant from the Flynn Foundation. If you like politics, make sure to check out one of our other podcasts, The Gaggle. Also be sure to check out Valley 101, a podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley, where you ask the questions and we find the answers. For the lab at AZ Central, 
I'm Alexandra Watts.